invited a rabbi into your home, it was, it was customary that literally your home was open then to anyone who wanted to come by and listen. They could stop, they could listen to the conversation. And so it wasn't horribly unusual this woman would show up. Because, you, you know, one of my thoughts when I first read this was, was you know, uh, boy, that took a lot of nerve just walking right in. But, you know, it was, was customary then. But it was her desire to find Jesus. And when her eyes finally rested on him, I kind of think the other guests there just kind of faded in a blur of her tears. And it suddenly didn't matter to her what these respectable people thought about her. Because all she sees is Jesus. And so, according to verse 38, she stood at his feet behind him weeping. Now again, trying to lay out the scenario of, of what's happening here is, is also when they, when they ate, they would recline. And they would either have like a, a, a couch or even the floor, but they would recline with their feet behind them. They would rest on one elbow and then eat. Now it kind of seems a little uncomfortable for me, but I'm a creature of habit and I don't like change, so I'm probably not going to try it. But that was the custom of that day. So as she came in, Jesus would have been his head at the table resting on his arm and his feet outstretched behind him. And so it says, she stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. She knelt at the feet of Jesus with the perfume she had brought with the purpose of anointing his feet. Then something unexpected happened. She was weeping un so uncontrollably that her tears began to cover Jesus' dusty feet. No doubt, probably, she was, she was probably embarrassed. She probably began to search desperately for something to wipe the tears off his feet. Because she really hadn't come prepared for that to happen. And mortified that her tears had fallen on the feet of Jesus, she takes the only thing available to her. She lets down her long hair and begins to dry his feet. But the more she wipes with her hair, the more tears that falls. She literally uses the water of her tears to wash his feet. Something she could hardly have planned in advance to do. I mean, you ever just plan to cry? Now, I've known people that can do that. I never was really good at that. But I don't think we really plan to just let loose, do we? And so, she began to kiss his feet. Now, again, when we first read that, if you're like me, I think... Again, what would Drew think as, as I wash his feet, I pick him up, and I just start kissing him? Again, he probably wouldn't come back, would you, Drew? 
it's not something I would, well, never mind, I won't go there. But again, this was a custom of the time. In fact, the text uses a verb form which means to kiss again and again and again. So literally, she was repeatedly kissing his feet. Now, there's nothing erotic about this, but this, this was a sign of respect. As a sign of respect, you would pour perfume on someone's head. Perhaps she felt unworthy to anoint his head, so she anointed his feet instead. Or, or maybe she was afraid to approach the table where the invited guests were at. I don't know. But we do know that she, she anointed his feet. And kissing a feet was a sign of utmost respect of submission and affection. There wasn't anything weird about that then. And so understanding that, we can see it in a little bit different light. This was a sign of affection. This was a sign of respect. But Simon did none of these. No kiss, no foot washing, no anointing of Jesus' head with oil. And I also wonder... Were her tears tears of repentance for the tears of shame? Or were they tears of utmost joy just to be in the presence of the Savior? I don't know. But I know that I can, I'm known in our family to be on a sensitive side. I hate watching movies with my daughter, especially the movies that kind of tug at your heart, because I will do everything I can not to cry. And I make funny noises. Like, <coughs> not going to cry, I'm not going to cry. You know, and, and invariably she always makes fun of me. Dad, are you crying? No, I'm not crying. You know, and... And I know times in my life that I have, I'm going to tuck this in. I may look like a doofus, but there we go. I know there's been times in my life that I really cried hard. I can remember when my, my brother died at a young age, it, just the tears flow. I can remember losing my mother. You know, different times in life. Even, even this last week, my, my uh, German shepherd was 12 years old and we had to put him down and and I made it through the process until I got to my truck and then then I you know I let a few tears flow but I can only remember one time in my life that where my tears flowed so uncontrollably and that was a little over 28 years ago when the Lord touched my life and for me, it was literally tears of joy, knowing that God was real and that he loved me. And they flowed for hours. And, and I look back at that time, and, and I kind of understand a little bit 
what she's going through. I think it's a little of both. I think she's having these tears of, of seeing the sin in her life, but yet understanding that she's in the presence of our Lord and Savior. And she just, it just flows like a fountain out of her. And so she's a self-forgetting mess. She's crying unashamedly. Probably her nose is running because she's weeping and probably snotting all over the place. And her hair is wet with a muddy mixture of tears and dirt. And, and this sweet fragrance fills the room. And if everyone wasn't aware of her actions, I think they became aware now. And I believe that all the eyes in the room was on Jesus. And he doesn't appear to be embarrassed or upset at this display of love and affection. What she did was remarkably well. I believe she was worshiping. I believe this woman's worship came at a great personal cost. It cost her the expense of this vile perfume, because this was not cheap perfume. Probably a year's wages. It cost her the humility to kiss, wash, and dry with the hair the dirty feet of our Lord. And perhaps the greatest cost of all she faced was the scorn and rejection of this self-righteous Pharisee and his dinner guests. No one had invited her. She was not wanted there. She probably would be scorned, and she might even be thrown out. But none of these things really mattered, because her desire to see and worship Jesus was greater than her fear. The price she had to pay might have been high, but it was worth it. In verse 39, said, When the Pharisee who had invited her saw this, he said to them himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And I think that really reveals the heart of Simon right there. And unfortunately, I think that's a huge problem in the church today. I really believe that's a lot why the church in America is very ineffective. Because I think we have a lot. I'm not throwing any accusations here. Because when I preach, I preach to myself. And I have been guilty of this over and over again. But I think we look our noses down on those who are in sin. Jesus answered him. Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. It says, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Now, denarii was about a day's wages. So one person was in debt about a year and a half of wages. The other day, less than two months. And so neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them 
will love him more. And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus answered, he says, you have judged correctly. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. As her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So let's, let's look close at this. Who has been forgiven more here? This was a challenge we did a few weeks ago with the youth group. And I, and I asked them this question. Who's been forgiven more? Now, obviously, the woman has. She's been given, forgiven more because she's the only one that has repented. But let me ask you another, another question here. Whose sin was greater here? Because so many times I've, I've, I've seen this taught. I think I've even probably taught it like this in the past. But so many times I've, I've taught it as if this woman, knowing her great sin, was forgiven. She began to love because of that. But I'm asking a question because the, as I look through this now, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, but really, whose sin is the greater here? Because I honestly believe, had the Pharisee seen the depth of his own sin, he would have been right there beside her, weeping at Jesus' feet too. I'm reminded of another Pharisee. If I can find my notes. Another Pharisee that I believe God has used mightily. And this is the Apostle Paul. This comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And Paul says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and have been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. And now we add to that in, in the fact that Paul was a Pharisee. So Paul lived a life that was very clean. Because Pharisees would do everything they could to avoid sin or any appearance of sin. And they took a lot of pride in their goodness. And so Paul was a Pharisee of all Pharisees. But I wonder, what, why did God use this man more than any other normal man? I believe in scriptures wrote so much of the New Testament 
And I believe it's summed up in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. This is the same man. This is Paul the Pharisee. This is a man who from the very time he made his vow that he has literally not done the things that we would consider sin. He didn't get drunk. He didn't, get, he didn't use drugs. He didn't, he didn't commit adultery. He didn't do the things that we think of as the major sins. And yet he says here in 1 Timothy, he says, I have been... Oops, that's the wrong one. That was the end of the other. He says, I, 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 this is hard to get used to, isn't it, Glenn? Okay, here's where I was wanting. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy. So that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. And I believe there was a time that Paul was blinded by the same sin as Simon. But a difference with Paul was that Paul repented. But one thing I want to illustrate here is, is that who's the greater sinner then if we put Paul or this woman? Who is the greater sinner? And I am convinced that as Christians, we are convicted of sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't believe there's a, for one thing, we know what are the wages of sin. Death. The wages of sin are death. We know that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God and that we're all sinners. We were born sinners. And I, I mean, we all understand that, I believe. And I don't believe there's a degree of sin, but I do think there's one sin that is the most dangerous sin we could possibly practice. Now I know that Paul will talk about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he'll talk about sexual sin and he'll talk about how no other sin is against the body and you know and he and, and sexual sin is is a is a major sin. I'm not going to downgrade that. But I believe there is a sin that I believe the Pharisee suffered from the spiritual blindness that I consider to be caused by the most rampant and deadly sin of all. It was the same sin that was first recorded in Genesis in the garden. It was the root of Satan being cast out of heaven. It has blinded men since the beginning of time. And I believe it renders men and women of God helpless. I believe it's caused more marriages to be destroyed. It blinds people to the very saving grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
It makes the church today into a Christian playground rather than our eyes being open to the spiritual warfare that's all around us. And I believe this was the sin of Simon. Now I believe this Pharisee was guilty of the sin of pride. It was his own pride that kept him from seeing. Imagine this. Our Lord and Savior, one of these days, we're going to come face to face. And we're not going to walk in and high five him. We're going to fall at his feet and worship him. But imagine this. Here is this Pharisee, this supposed man of God who devoted his whole life to following the commandments. Here is this Pharisee, and in his midst, at his table, sat the creator of this universe. And I'm sitting there, and as I read this, I'm thinking, Wow! But he couldn't even see it because of his own pride. It was his own pride that kept him from seeing. And pride will deceive us in many ways. Pride deceives us into believing we are self-sufficient. Pride can deceive us into thinking that we have a special line of communication to God because of our virtue. That we are somehow more special to God than others. Pride deceives us into believing the good we receive from God is somehow deserved. Pride deceives us into thinking that we are better than others. And in thinking this, it makes us worse. Pride isolates us from those very people that we look down upon. Pride hardens our heart. This, this past couple of weeks, I, I, I remember, you know, none of us have escaped the news of the shooting out, out east. And, and so many times I've, I've heard the, the um, say, well, we took God out of our schools. What do we expect? But you know what? We haven't taken God out of our schools. One of the first things I did that Sunday morning was thank, was thank the McVeighs because they take Jesus Christ into school every day. Every, as long as there's teachers, and there's several teachers in here, and as long as we have teachers who are Christians, as long as we have students who are Christians, we take Christ into the schools. The problem with this nation isn't the guns. It isn't, it isn't the fact that we've we can't pray collectively in schools. The problem is that we are systematically taking God out of our culture. That is the problem with our country today. It doesn't isolate on one instance or, or one simple thing, but we need to repent as a nation. Because it's pride that hardens our heart. And our hearts of America have become hardened. The hearts in the church today, I believe in a lot of ways, have become hardened. And it's all caused by that pride of not understanding that God's grace and mercy is a free gift and nothing we can ever earn or deserve. And that we are here only because of that. 
It's good to be good, but it's not our goodness that saves us. It is our relationship with our Lord and Jesus Christ. And in all honesty, I believe we should be jumping up and down every day. Every day we should celebrate Christmas, the birth of our Savior. Every day we should celebrate Easter, knowing that Jesus died for our sin 2,000 years ago. But it's pride that hardens our hearts. And we lose compassion for others. Pride brings discontent. It makes us feel that we lack recognition that we deserve. Pride brings contention that, you know, we can't all have first place, so we fight about it. And I think even more important than anything, pride denies guilt. It rationalizes and it justifies our action but refuses to accept blame. I don't know how many marriages I have seen destroyed because of sin of one part or the other and, and not being able to recognize their own sin and not admitting to it, confessing and repenting. I can't, I can't even go on and say what that has done, pride has done to keep us from our Lord. I look at my life and, and I've shared with you many times and and I look at my life and it wasn't it wasn't the sin of addiction, wasn't the sin of adultery, wasn't the major sins in my life I consider to be the worst sin I've ever done. It's the pride that came into my heart later on as a Christian that I consider the worst sin I've ever done. And I thank God that I'm beginning to get a glimpse of that because pride blinds us. It blinds us to the truth. I remember several years ago, a good friend and I, We'd get together every Wednesday morning for breakfast, and we did this for six years. And uh, we were both in youth ministry at that time, and we both, and later on, we even combined our groups. And we were about as opposite as opposites could be. I was raised by drunks. He was raised by missionaries. He, uh, I did, I won't even make a list. I did everything I could imagine wrong. He did everything right. But yet, when he gave his life to the Lord at 16, and when I gave my life to the Lord at 31, we were both just as dead. We were both just as dead. Because, you know, this is something I I tried to talk with the youth several weeks ago. By the way, you know, we have, I didn't realize it until September, but we have, we have the neatest youth here. And you know what's been hard for me is I have spent three months now, gone through ten verses in First John, trying to get these, these young people who are some of, well, not, there are some exceptions, no. <laughs> but trying to get them to see, because they're, they're really good youth. They do a lot of good things. They bought me a new Bible. How much gooder could you get than that? You know, 
But one of the goals I have had, because one thing that stuck in my mind several months ago was that J.D. was talking about percentages. And he talked about that by percentages, 80% of our youth walk away once they get into college or out of the home. And I'm going to tell you something. I love these youth. And I don't want to see a one of them walk away. And so I spent three months and ten verses convincing these good kids they're not good. <laughs> or trying to convince them that they're the worst of sinners. And that's not been easy. But it's so important to me because I believe if every one of them begin to see and understand that their goodness comes from God and that their salvation belongs to Him, then they're not going to walk away. And so, I asked them a while back, because every once in a while I get to share a testimony. I'm involved with Celebrate Recovery, different things, and, and, and uh, I get to share a testimony of, of the miracles that God did in my life. But it bothers me some. It doesn't bother me to hang out my dirty laundry. Because Christ took care of all that. But what bothers me is a lot of times when we hear testimonies like that, it's a thing of, you know, I did all these things bad, and then Christ came into my life, and so then I started to do all these things good. But see, that's not what it's about. It's about God's grace and mercy. And one thing I asked the, I, I asked the youth a while back was, that how many of you have a really great testimony? Because we think of testimonies being an addiction into different lifestyles or different things, you know? And none of them raised their hand. And I told them, you see, this is where you're, you don't understand this, is that we all have a great testimony. We all share the same testimony. Because our testimony is the very fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins 2,000 years ago on a tree outside of Jerusalem. That is our testimony. And that's something we can all shout about. It's something we all share. And you can't ever say, well, I don't have a big testimony. No. You know what? Maybe you didn't reap some of the crud. And that's good. But we all have a great testimony. And we all share it. And we all are saved by God's grace and mercy. And the very opposite of pride is humility. If I can find it. If you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians 2. I don't have it on the... But I'm going to end with this, this scripture. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, and I want to ask you that this morning. I want to challenge you that this morning. I want to challenge this Harvest Fellowship. Do you have any encouragement with being united with Christ? You can even get vocal and say yes if you want. Do you have any comfort from his love? Is there any common sharing in the spirit? Okay. Let's make sure nobody's asleep. 
Is there any tenderness and compassion? Then he goes on and says, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking at your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who in being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's what our Savior did for us. And therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Worship team, come on up. But you see, this is our testimony. This is the greatest gift we could ever get even greater than a suit of armor. But we have to really grasp that in our hearts. That God gave us the greatest gift of all. That think of this. I think of this so many times that there came a point in my life He offered me this amazing trade. My sin, His eternal life. And I look back now and I think, that's a no-brainer. But for 31 years, I was blind to that, even with my own pride. And so, this is my challenge for Harvest this year. This is my challenge for 2013. And I want you to listen closely. Even close your eyes and listen to this question. Because it's going to shape up how effective you are in Christ. It's going to shape up how you worship, how you live. So I'm going to ask you this question. Do you love little or do you love much as a result of your sins being forgiven? I'm going to say that again. Knowing your sins are forgiven, does that make you love a little bit? Or are you like the woman of ill repute? It makes you love a lot. Because it doesn't matter what our sins are. What matters 
is how we feel about them being forgiven. Do we love little or do we love much? That is the greatest gift of all. Thank you. God bless.